With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to Working, a podcast about what people do all day. I'm David Plotz. What's your name and what do you do? My name is Kathy Kunzer and I'm a hospice nurse. What's the first thing you do when you get to work in the morning? The first thing I do is I count. Um, we have a lot of narcotics. We do that at the beginning of a shift, and we also do that at the end of a shift. And then we listen to report. We all sit down around a table, sometimes with the doctor, sometimes not. And the nurse that is leaving the shift gives us report on the patients that we have. I work at a nine-bed inpatient unit. And what might be in the report? What are the kind of things that the outgoing nurse is going to be telling you? We always give the patient's name, their age, their sex, their diagnosis, why they're there. We always give their status, which is DNR. Sorry, DNR, just explain what that is. Uh, do not resuscitate or do not intubate. When they had their last bowel movement, that's just for the starters. Then we, we include whether they have a, a central line or a metaport or if they have any kind of extraneous IV lines going into them and whether they have a Foley catheter. We give a general report about what their day, the patient's day, was like. Does every patient who, who comes into the hospice center you're working at, are they conscious? Do they know where they are? Have they made a decision to be there? I think about 60% of our patients come to us, maybe 75% come to us with some kind of delirium, confusion, agitation, or unresponsive. They shortly become unresponsive. This is very distressing for the family members because they believe it's the drugs. They believe it's because they were moved. But really what's happening is the body is shutting down, and no one has told the family this. So for most of our patients, they are really not alert and oriented, and they need someone to help them make decisions, life decisions for them, and usually it's a family member or a close friend. Let's go back to your responsibility. So you've taken over on the shift. What is it that you're doing for these patients who are delirious or unconscious that's helping them? Well, as a hospice nurse, first of all, we're thinking of comfort. They usually come in for pain, shortness of breath, agitation, or seizures. And so we're looking, we do a lot of pain control. What are the kinds of drugs that you're giving? All right. Our drugs are really, they go back to the very basics of when hospice first came out. We give a hydrocodone, which is called Dilaudid. We That's um, a synthetic morphine. We also give methadone. Methadone is um, a very, very effective drug. It's about 10 times more powerful than morphine, and it's very, very effective, especially with nerve pain. 
We also give a short-acting morphine, and we give a long-acting morphine. We give lorazepam or Ativan, and we use that for anxiety, and we also use it for seizure control. Uh, we also give Haldol, which is an antipsychotic. We use that for agitation. We also have some drugs for Robinol for secretions, and we do do um, albuterol treatments uh, because sometimes we have people who come in with chronic lung disease of some sort or another. And this is just a comfort measure. If they have wheezing or they're having difficulty breathing, we have these drugs on hand to just make them comfortable. It's not going to change the longevity of their life or anything. So those are basic drugs. We also have uh, a laxative that we try to give. Um, Some patients refuse, um, and it's their right. They can refuse to any medication. Do the patients who are conscious come in, what are they agitated about if they're agitated? And are, are they coming fearing death or not? Usually our patients that are agitated Sometimes they have a cancer with METs to the brain or with metastases to the brain. They may have something metabolic going on in in the dying process, or sometimes they also have a diagnosis of brain cancer. And so they're going to be delirious and and agitated. Uh, We also have something called terminal agitation that sometimes happens towards death. I think the team... Uh, the hospice team, not just the hospice nurse, but the doctor, the social worker, and the chaplain, we all realize that pain is not just in the body. There's, a, there's the mind and the body. And some, some people really do have a psychological, spiritual pain that the, the drugs that we give them may, may or may not touch. What if someone has that pain that isn't responsive to medication, that psychic pain? What is it that you do to nurse that person? Well, this is a little touchy. Um, the, the rule is, is the patient doing harm to themselves or to you? Because some of our patients, in my experience, are very strong, even at the end of their life. And they, they can, we do not restrain at the facility I work at. We use no restraints. So th- they're at fall risk. They can, they can actually, even in their delirium, leap out of the bed and may have a, a fall. Or when we're trying to put them back into bed, they could really, it's a defensive mechanism. They could actually strike out and hit us. And, and, and some of us have been, been physically assaulted. So in the last measures, if, let's say, a combination of Haldol and and, um, lorazepam doesn't work to calm the patient down, and also talking to them in a calm voice, uh, putting a reassuring hand on them sometimes will settle them, and working with the families, if the families are there, uh, this will settle them down. We have to resort to phenobarbital or something a little bit stronger to really um, calm them down so that they're not hurting themselves and they're not hurting the staff. How often do you get to talk to a patient in an actual real conversation where they can convey 
something important to them or, or you can offer them real comfort that they can understand. Does that happen frequently or is that a rare occurrence? It doesn't happen frequently. No, most of the time um, I'm talking with the family. I'm really uh, working with the family, answering their questions. I am listening. Uh, there's a lot of guilt, uh, especially if, it, if an event happens at the hospital. A family member will think, what could I have done to prevent that from happening? So a lot of times I am really listening to the family members as they come in and see what their baseline, what they know, and what, what do they want to know. And then we go from there. Sometimes I, we do have patients that we can talk to, but it's more listening, and um, you always hope that you can do a life review or you can um, encourage family to bring in pictures and, and, and favorite music or bring in things that will make the room. Uh, some of our patients like flowers. And, so, and then some of our patients will actually say, can you move the flowers so that I can see them? And they will engage with us. What's a life review? Well, you just start a conversation where, you know, you can ask them where they're from or what they what what did they do and and then and then you try to let them lead you whatever topic they want to pick about their life or talk about their children or and then sometimes that will lead the conversation to um dealing with the idea that I've I've done all I'm okay with going it's just the people I'm leaving behind or I'm not okay with it. I have some unfinished things that I need to do, and uh, you try to do. I happen to be a talker, but not in my job. I feel that my job is to listen and to watch, to do what I can. I always talk to my patients no matter what state they're in. I always greet them, and I always introduce myself. Um, I tell them what day it is. I tell them what time of the day it is. I tell them whether I've had them or not. So I, I, I really do believe that the hearing is the last to go, and the hear, hearing is very acute. So when family members come in and they start yelling, I, I always take them out of the room and I say, you don't have to do that. Even with patients who can't hear, I think that they're hearing at the end, they can feel it. So I always try to emphasize to talk in as soothing a voice as possible and to say the really important things, which is really at the end, it's about love. The judgment, you, you put aside. You try to get family members to not judge each other. So-and-so is not coming often enough. They really want to get into that. They really want to focus on, on what is not right. Try to move the family away from that. And you, by life review, too, you try to get them to be in touch with their, their heart, their love. If that happens, then at the end, all that's there is love. What are the things, when you're talking to the family, what are the kinds of questions that 
family members are asking you or the information that you're volunteering? What are some of the main themes? Is my loved one going to die? And I say, I, I'm very honest, and uh, yes, they are. Do you know when? No, I don't. Then sometimes I will ask them at this point, is it important for you to be here? And we put that on a big note on their file, if it is, call so-and-so. If we have an in- Sometimes we do know when a patient is actively dying. We just can't pinpoint the time. It could take eight hours, ten hours, four hours, one hour, two hours. And if we try to make that happen. Let me interrupt you there. What would be the signs that you would have that a patient is actively dying or will die in the next eight to ten hours? Change in breathing. Uh, The breathing usually gets more shallow they have what we call apneic periods, where periods where they're not breathing at all. And these can last as long as 30 seconds, and 30 seconds is a long time. Um, sometimes 45. I have seen patients go 45 seconds before taking another breath. So they start to change their pattern of breathing that I always use as a guide, but they, they sometimes have a look, but you know, that can't, I can't really say that because they've, uh, I just had two patients this past week that I thought were going to die on my shift and they la- they're still there. So they're very strong and both of these patients are 95 years old. Um, sometimes they will start to have what looks like nausea. They'll start to be a bit agitated. And this is a real decision call. Do we, is this agitation due to just because they're agitated and something is going on? Or is this agitation because they are really dying? And we don't want to medicate them at that period. And that's a hard call to make. If you were a family member or you yourself were a patient, do you think there's any benefit to the patients living longer once they've gotten to you? Or is your view like if someone comes in the door and then they're, they've died an hour later, that's better than them having lived a week in this kind of state? No, I don't, I don't have any judgment about that. I did have a patient, uh, because this is big city hospice nursing, very much in distress that um, probably was going to die in the hospital. She was very, very agitated, full-blown AIDS, uh, Hep B and Hep C, and uh, she was quite emaciated, and it was very, very difficult to see her. At the end of the day, I feel that we gave them a clean bed and a beautiful room to die in. And so whether they're there for an hour or four hours or three days, I really feel that um, we've made them comfortable in the end. And whether they have family there or not for them, we, we're there. Do family members ever ask, can you give them some extra morphine? Can you just make this happen faster? Does that ever happen? Yes. And I say I, don't, I can't do that. And I also sometimes when I did home hospice, I was asked about ha- helping to end a life, and I also said I don't, I don't know that. That's not within my realm of, of nursing. 
uh, usually the case is the families want something to blame, and they're blaming you or the drugs you're giving them. They don't want you to medicate. They, they would rather have their family member in, in pain and alert than have them maybe not so alert but comfortable. And this is where the education comes in. So what is the conversation you'd have in a circumstance like that? We have many conversations. We begin it by explaining about the process that the patient is going through and their dying process and what we do, which is comfort. And we talk about that it's not the medication, it's not the drugs. If that doesn't work, we often get the the doctor. They often want to speak to the doctor. So we get the doctor on the phone and our doctor usually tries to head that off at the pass and actually talks to the family members right away. So, you know, if it's a 95-year-old who's dying, we can all live with that. That, all, that seems reasonable. We'd all be thankful to get that far ourselves, or I certainly would be. Did you, is it just harder to, to be at work when you have to face patients who are your age or younger? Uh, many patients are younger than than me, actually. I really try not to have any judgments. I think that my own personal belief is that we make, a, we make a bargain when we come into this world that part of being born is that we're all going to die. And I think that I live with that every day, and I know I'm under no illusions about it. And I feel that, I really feel, especially when I hear things like with the IV drug users or if they come in with full-blown AIDS, well, they're, this is what they've chosen for their life, and, and so, you know, uh, this is what they're going to get. I really feel that that's not my place, that I don't, I'm not in the business of judging. I'm, I'm in the business of taking care, uh, caregiving, and also I want my patients to be comfortable, but it's messy. The dying is not, it can be peaceful, and it can be, um, for some, a very beautiful experience. It's always a learning experience. There's always something to be learned, but it's, it's pretty messy. When a patient dies, what do you do? That's a very good question, especially when we first admit them. So let's say I admit a patient at 5 o'clock. I not only admit them get them calmed down or get them in a place where they are comfortable. I then have to call the doctor. I have to get orders. If the doctor isn't there, I have to get specific orders. I have to also give the doctor a report. And I have about two hours of paperwork along with my other patients, that I have to enter into the computer, and also we still have a paper trail. Now, let's say the patient dies at 9.15 p.m., so four hours later. This is a good example. It does happen. If a patient dies within 24 hours of being admitted, you have to call the medical examiner. So I go in, and um, sometimes I've gone in to make rounds, or sometimes a certified nurse's aide has gone in to maybe do care on the patient, and she realizes the patient isn't breathing. 
So I go in, I listen for a heartbeat, I look at the respirations, and I determine that the patient is no longer alive. I call the doctor. That's your determination? Yes. In, in other states, in New Mexico, um, we, are cert- we are deputized by the medical examiner's office to pronounce people dead in their homes, and that's part of the hospice nurse's job. Here in Washington, D.C., in, in um, the inpatient facility, we determine this, and then we call the doctor. If this should happen within 24 hours, we have to call the medical examiner because was there foul play? Did the patient fall? Was there negligence? And the medical examiner will get on the phone and really ask all the questions he or she needs to ask of us. When they are satisfied that no foul play has been done, we get a medical examiner record number. We need this number to release the body to the funeral home. So if that happens within 24 hours, this is what I need to do besides doing the death summary, the postmortem visit, and all of my notes. How do you inform the family? After I call the doctor, I call the family before I do anything else. Um, I call the family, and I ask them if they're alone, and usually they either know or they may start to um, get very upset. And so I stay on the line. I stay on the line until they can calm themselves down, and I make sure they're not alone. I, if, they're, if they are alone, I, I have another nurse on another line calling the, another relative to go to their, their home and let them know. So we're working together on this. In one case, I knew that the daughter had just left and she was driving home. I waited. I did not want to, to call her on her cell phone Uh, I wanted her to get home first. And then I waited, and I called her sister. And what what would the conversation be? What would you say? I would say my name. I would say I'm calling from. And and then I asked them if if they're home alone or if they're with someone. And then I I tell them I'm very, very sorry that so-and-so has passed away. Sometimes it depends on the language. Sometimes they use the word gone. I will use the word gone. Sometimes they will say no longer with us. I will use those words. Sometimes they will say crossing the river. I will say that he or she has crossed the river. Um, It just depends. Sometimes I'll get to know the families well enough to know their vocabulary, and I will use their vocabulary. If not, I will just be right out there with it. I, I mean, I will just say that so-and-so has died. In fact, most of the time, that's what I say. What information do you then convey to them about what's happening to the body or the funeral home or anything like that? Or are they conveying that to you? The, the other part I didn't put in is that once we determine that a patient has died, we usually prepare their body. A lot of times we've already given them a bath, but if we haven't, we bathe them. 
it's the nurse's job to remove all the lines. If they have any peripheral lines or any sub-Q lines or a, f- a Foley catheter, we, we remove all that. We usually, um, if their mouth is open, we put a towel under their chin um, because we want their mouth to be closed. Um, and then we, we wrap them like in a shroud, um, regardless of whether their family comes or not. So that's done. Then I usually ask the family if they want to come and visit, that the patient is, that their, their loved one is, has been prepared and they can come and visit and say their goodbyes. A lot of times they don't want to do it. They don't want to come, and that's fine. And so then I will say, do you want me to call the funeral home? Or I'll call the funeral home because we do not have we don't have coal storage, so the funeral home needs to be notified, and and that's what we usually do. Sometimes they want to be there; they want to come first, and and usually the funeral home doesn't come right away. What is it like to give a bath to a dead body? It's actually a privilege. It's not most of our patients haven't been dead for very long; they're still very warm. I treat, we all do actually, treat the body with respect and actually, um, I don't know if love is the right word, but it's it's very lovingly done. Also, I think in the end, it's just a body. Uh, I treat it very respectfully, but it's very obvious to me that there's no one there. And that that spirit or whatever, I don't know, has gone. And whoever made that person that person is no longer with us. Does anything funny ever happen? Do you guys ever laugh? What what kind of funny things? The other night we were watching an African-American or I guess um, a, what I would call a black channel. And I work with a lot of African-Americans. And we have a, we have a nice living uh, dining room area where we have a very big TV. And I guess um, that channel was having an awards and Chris Rock was on and um, – it was a quiet night, and everyone was comfortable. I mean, we had we had six patients, but everyone was comfortable, and it was so we were sitting around um, watching. And I did think, wow, you know, we're we're laughing and we're enjoying the show, we're enjoying each other, but we're also paying attention to what's going on. But I I think that we do laugh that way. Um, sometimes I say, well, you know, when somebody's in a rush, I say, I tell them to just slow down, that we're not saving lives here. I mean, that's kind of dark humor, but I, I do say that, and that usually gets a laugh because I, you know, when I see somebody that's getting stressed out or wound up or something, I'll, I'll just sort of say that. Sometimes we'll make, uh, I hate to say this, but sometimes we'll, we'll just make crazy jokes, um, sexual innuendos with each other. We'll talk about, make fun of each other's private lives. Most of us are going through menopause or menopausal, so they, there's always a fight between who wants the fans going, who's hot, who's not hot. There is some humor. I I do wonder, and I 
I haven't had the opportunity to ask family members because they're always giving us pretty good feedback what they must think when they hear us laughing. Do the fa- are the families ever laugh? I mean, do you ever think it's appropriate to make a, a kind of wry remark to a family or do you, do you think that's out of place or are there moments where that would be okay? And are they ever doing it with each other? Because I remember, I think when my, my grandmother was dying, she was a um, 101. Um, but we, you know, we spent a lot of time just, you know, she was a funny woman and we just spent time sort of saying, remembering funny things. But that was, I don't know if that happens with families too. Well, there's your life review. And we do. We do have families like that. Families will fly in from all over the country, so it's a reunion for them. And they'll sit around and tell jokes and laugh, and sometimes I'll be in there and we'll be riffing on something. And if it's totally appropriate, yes, because I love to laugh. I love it when other people are laughing. And so I like to get in the game of it, too, if it's appropriate. It's not a, it's not a gloomy place. I mean, it's, um, it's, it's not a gloomy place. Do you think you'd want to go through hospice? Oh, definitely. Definitely. I feel, well, I don't want anything. You know, my advanced directive is no, I don't want anything. I don't want any heroics. I, um, if I was diagnosed with cancer today, I would not have any treatment. I would just live whatever time I had out that I do not at this point in my life I've had a good life I've had a full life I've I don't have a whole lot of regrets I I wouldn't um I I wouldn't go for any treatments so at least that's what I think now I mean because you know I I don't have anything but um in my advanced directives I don't have I I have nothing if it's possible and not a bur- not hard for my family, I want to be taken home to die. But if it's not possible, then I don't want any fluids. I don't want any food or feeding um, or anything extraneous done. So, and I and I hope there there is a hospice that I'll be able to to go to if that is the way I'm going to go. Thanks for listening to this episode of Working. On the next show, I'm going to talk to John Lefevre, who is the world's greatest appliance repairman. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun, Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.